this week, Sean Hodgson was released after 27 years in prison for a murder that he didn't commit. He'd always protested his innocence, but uh, the Court of Appeal originally rejected his request for an appeal, and his case died, and uh, he disappeared into the prison system for many years with no one to to run a high-profile campaign for him and no prospect of remission. He had no one he could call on. It was in some ways a real-life version of the, uh, one of the great films of all time, one of my favourite films, that's The Shawshank Redemption. don't know whether you know that one. Um, it's about a, a banker called Andy Dufresne who was wrongly imprisoned for the murder of his wife. And there's a moment in the film when he's told by a fellow prisoner that he actually knows who really killed his wife. And with this new information, Dufresne rushes to the prison governor, thinking that this is his chance to be released. This is what he needs. But instead, he's put in solitary confinement, and his witness is murdered by a prison guard claiming he was trying to escape. And he's left in the darkness, in solitary confinement, effectively in the pit, with no one to call on in desperation. And the passage we're looking at this morning that uh, Vi read out for us earlier on portrays that pain in the pit. If you've got your Bibles there open, it's on page 8, 2, 6 and 7. Just have a look at um, verses 52 to 54. As the writer says, those who were my enemies without cause, hunted me like a bird. They tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head. I thought I was about to be cut off. There are images of physical pain, of being unjustly hunted and persecuted, but they also convey a spiritual darkness. Since the darkness that came over the land after Jesus died on the cross for three hours, the land was covered in darkness when Jesus was cut off from the Father, symbolising spiritual darkness, the darkness of the people who had put him there. But before you think, well, this is all a bit depressing for Mothering Sunday, isn't it? The passage here presents an opportunity for everyone to escape from the pit, from spiritual darkness. It is here actually a message of great hope. Because, as we'll see, being in the pit is actually not the worst place to be. If being in the pit makes us call on the only one who can help us, the worst place to be is actually in our own little castle where we think we are secure and we don't feel we need to call on the Lord. Well, for the benefit of uh, visitors uh, here this morning, we are in the middle of a sermon series. Uh, We're looking at the Book of Lamentations. And just to to remind you of the situation, the context, it was written after the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, when the people of Judah were taken into exile by the invading Babylonian army, something that Jeremiah and a prophet had warned them about for many years if they persisted in their sin and their rebellion against God. And so the Book of Lamentations, as the name suggests, is a series of laments, just lamenting what has happened to the people as they've continued in their sin. It's a very carefully constructed book. Uh, There are five chapters, five sections. Uh, The first two chapters and the last two 
each have 22 verses each, and each of those verses begin with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This middle chapter actually has 66 verses, and so there are three verses for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the reason that chapter 3 is the longest chapter is because of its importance to the whole book. In some ways, we're reaching here the pinnacle, the, the plateau. And that's why we're spending two weeks doing it. Last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 3, and that's where we saw how, when our souls are downcast, that we can have hope, we can recall God's great love, God's great compassion to us, his faithfulness to us. And if you recall, the, the key verse here was verse 22 of chapter 3. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. Well, this week we're going to look at what it means to wait for him, to hope in him, to seek him, what it means to call on him and why we need to call on him. And there are three points I'd like to make about it, what it means to call on the name of the Lord. The first of those is to call on God is first of all to confess our guilt. Verse 34 starts with three questions. Look at the verse 34. It says, To crush underfoot all prisoners in the land, to deny a man his rights before the Most High, to deprive a man of justice. Would not the Lord see such things? These are all things that have happened to the people of Judah. They have been crushed underfoot. They have had their rights denied. But the point that Jeremiah is trying to say here to the people is that the Lord is sovereign over good, he's sovereign over evil. And therefore, if he has allowed these things to happen, then maybe he had a reason for it. As it continues in verse 37, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Or verse 38, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Now the reason that God allowed these things to happen, Jeremiah is saying to them, is because of your sin, the sin I warned you about for, for many, many years. And that's what is quite clear if you turn back to chapter 1, remind yourself, chapter 1, verse 8. There, Jeremiah says, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honoured her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She, she herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts, etc., etc. It's because of their sin. And what Jeremiah is trying to say is, rather than just trying to, to justify yourself, maybe trying to find an excuse for your actions, rather than just complaining at the injustice of it all, wake up and look at yourself, he's saying. Look what he says in verse 39, back in chapter 3. He says, why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Beginning of last week, Joseph uh, Fritzl was protesting his innocence against some of the charges that have been levelled against him, such as murder, enslavement. But there was a moment in the courtroom where he caught sight of his daughter, the one whom he had caused 
so much pain. And he abruptly changed his plea to guilty on all counts. He said, I'm sorry from the bottom of my heart. I cannot take back what I did. Well, whether that penitence was sincere or not, only God knows. But to call out to God is not to say, look at how bad I am being treated here, God. It's not to to justify ourselves. It's not to say, look, really I'm a good person. It's actually to say, yes, I do deserve to be punished for my sins. It does matter that I've been living my life as if he didn't exist, God. I do accept that that does have consequences. And I can't expect that when I meet you to say that, well, none of that matters. I guess the, the issue for most people, and uh, it's a question which comes up every time we do Christianity Explored, is what about hell? You know, how can a, a loving God send somebody to, to hell? You know, isn't that somehow a, a disproportionate punishment for those who haven't actually done anything serious? You know, I can accept it if, if Fritzl goes to hell, but what about the, the average person in the street? Maybe all they've done is really just maybe fiddle their tax returns or something like that. And I think this is where Tim Keller's book, I don't know whether you've come across Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Um, I had meant to bring one with me this morning, but it's a very good book. It looks at common objections to the Christian faith. Um, but it's very, very insightful and gives very interesting explanations uh, for them. And one of the things he does, he dispels the idea that, that many people have, which is that God gives us plenty of time to make our minds up, to make that decision. But, you know, if we haven't made the right decision by the time we die, then he simply says, well, you've had your chance, it's too late now, off you go into hell for the rest of eternity. What he tries to explain is that the, the concept of sin is that it cuts us off from God's presence. Man was made to live in the immediate presence of God. He was made to enjoy God's blessings. But his sinfulness makes it impossible to be in God's presence. And that's what it says here in verse 44. He says, talking to God, you have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. He's cut off. To spend eternity in hell is to remain cut off from God's presence. It's to to carry on down a path of of self-centeredness with all the the envy, the anxiety, all the the bitterness that results from that. Keller takes the example of the the parable of of Lazarus and the rich man which we find in Luke's Gospel in chapter 16. You might want to just turn to that um, very briefly. It's on page 1050 of the Church Bibles, Luke 16. It's uh, verse 19 to 31. I'm not going to read it through. But um, what he's saying this parable shows here is how the rich man who is in heaven doesn't even show there any signs of repentance. He's not saying there, I'm sorry, I got it all wrong, forgive me. He's saying, look, tell Lazarus, this person who used to be his servant, to go and do this and that, as if he is still his servant. You know, there's no sense of humility here. He's saying, you know, go and tell my my family, go and warn them, give them a a better chance. It's all unjust, effectively, is what he's still saying. 
But the answer comes back in verse 31. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Even being presented with compelling evidence that Jesus rises from the dead, for those people who are there who saw him, is still not sufficient to make somebody turn to God if they don't want to. And if we want to go on moaning about the unfairness of life, how we don't deserve what we've got, then God is saying, well, off you go then. You know, you can carry on doing that for the rest of eternity if that is what you want. But all he's really looking for us is to say, actually, I do deserve to be punished for excluding you from my life. Fulfilling with my life with things that I consider more important than I consider you are. Please forgive me. Until we have appreciated that sense of need that we are all deserving of punishment, and Christianity will make no sense. And that may be the same for you here this morning. It may just make absolutely no sense to you. And that is why the writer here says, after verse 39. Why should any living man contain when punished for his, sin, for his sins? He carries on in verse 40. Let us examine our ways. Let us test them. And let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say we have sinned and rebelled. It's a, it's a confession. It's a confession not simply made with the lips of some sort of, uh, of ritual, but it's something that has to come from the heart, a truly sincere acknowledgement that yes, our our whole natures are naturally turned in on ourselves. They're not turned towards God. There's a real real sorrow here for sin as we read these verses. There's a sorrow for all the mistakes that we've made, whether we meant to or we didn't mean to. And all the pain that we've caused others, whether we meant to or we didn't. It's what causes, in verse 48, streams of tears to flow from my eyes. It brings grief to the soul. It's the moment when we realise that we are in the pit. That however glamorous or successful our lives may appear to be on the, the outside, however much we have desperately tried to hold it together, to show others that, yeah, we're okay, we confess that inside there is a a gaping hole waiting to be filled. It's a feeling of helplessness, a feeling that the waters have closed over our heads. We are about to be cut off. And it doesn't have to take a personal crisis to get to this point of acknowledging our guilt. Often God does use a crisis, but other times it is actually simply a gradual recognition of our need for him. But either way, until we come to that recognition that we are guilty of rejecting God, then we will remain in the pit. To call on God is to confess our guilt. But secondly, to call on God is to trust that he is the one who can help us. When Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption went to that prison governor, he really thought that this was somebody who was going to help him to be released from prison. What happened was that he ended up even deeper in the pit. It is only worth going to someone who is perfectly just, who will listen to our plea, who will deal with it 
fairly and justly. Someone who cares for us enough. Someone who wants the best for us. Somebody who is just. We all have a sense of justice, don't we? Right and wrong. You know, when we read of Sean Hodgson being wrongly imprisoned for 27 years, we think, well, that is a terrible miscarriage of justice. When we read of Joseph Fritzl being imprisoned for life, we think, well, justice has been done. And the Bible tells us that that instinct for justice comes from being made in God's image. Justice is a part of God's nature. It's a part of his character, and therefore we've been made with that same sense of, of justice. The Bible's full of verses that talk of, of God's justice. When uh, Jehoshaphat appointed judges over the people of Israel, he warned them, judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Psalm 89 it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. It is because God loves justice that he is also a God of wrath. His anger is that the world and the people he made to live in the world in harmony and in peace, that they've been affected by evil and injustice. And his judgment is the expression of his anger at that evil and injustice. If they remained unpunished forever, what sort of God would would that make him, really? Anger is not, as we said before, the opposite of love. It's actually an expression of love. It's a response to something unjust happening to those that we love. And to call on the Lord is to trust that he is perfectly just. But it's more than that. It's to trust that he can do something to help us. It was from the depths of the pits that the person here called out to the Lord. Verse 56. He says, Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. Do not close your ears, God. What was God's response? To to ignore him? To close his ears? Was it to to say, well, you took your time, didn't you? I've been waiting 50 years for you to say that. Was it to say, well, prove me that you mean it? No, the response was to say, 57, do not fear. It says, you came near when I called you, and you said, do not fear. O Lord, you took up my case, You redeemed my life. Don't feel that your situation is hopeless. God says, I am here, I can hear you. And I will do something about it. You have nothing to fear, it's going to be all right. He's saying, I love you despite your sinfulness. I will do something about that. I will not allow you to remain in the the pit and be cut off from, from me. No, I've opened up a way back to me, a way that involves my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, him being cut off from me on the cross. Him taking the sins of you and the rest of the world. It is he who suffers the things we read about here, the plots against him, the vengeance, the insults, the enemies, the mocking. 
But God says, for you, I will take up your case. You will have an advocate, somebody who will plead your case, the best that money can buy. Better even than Sherry Blair. The Lord Jesus Christ will be your advocate. He will free you. He will redeem your life. But unlike the lawyer who finally got Sean Hodgson released, the case he will plead for you won't be based on trying to prove your innocence. As we said, that would be impossible. No, it will be based on his innocence. The fact that he has taken your punishment. And that's why you can rest assured that he will be successful. He will win that case. He will buy your freedom. He will release you from the pit. To call on God is to trust that he can help each one of us. Finally, to call on God is to trust in his perfect justice. Richard Dawkins has uh, famously said that religion is actually the root of all evil. He's saying that if people believe in a God of judgment, then, well, surely it makes them want to be his agents of judgment. And that then leads to wars, that leads to, to fighting. Is that right, do you think? I would say as Tim Keller again says in his book, that actually it's more often than not the lack of belief in the justice and judgment of God that causes wars. And if you think about it, when do people take up arms? They take them up when they feel that either human justice has failed, that God is either not able to or for some reason not willing to exercise judgment on their enemies. It's It's a last measure of desperation, isn't it? Or there are other times when people take up arms and commit all sorts of atrocities because they think that they have no belief in God and there is no God out there and therefore there's no consequence for their actions. They they will get away with it. They will never be called to account. Why did Stalin murder 30 million people? Why did Pol Pot murder a quarter of his population? Wasn't it because they thought they would not face judgment? That there would be no eternal consequence for their actions? And so these last verses here of the the chapter are more a call on God to exercise his justice. It's saying, help me to trust in your justice so much that I don't need to have to take things into my own hands. That I can rely on you. Let's just uh, turn briefly to, to Romans chapter 12 to the New Testament. Romans 12, verse 17, page 1139. It says here, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Going back to Lamentations, it appears from these last verses that Jeremiah is an an innocent victim 
of his enemies. And we know when we read the book of Jeremiah that he did suffer much in his, his role as a prophet. And we all face situations where we, we feel we would like to exercise our own justice. You know, usually it's in the form of getting our own back on somebody. Somebody who's treated us unfairly. We don't like to see somebody getting away with something. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And shouldn't our prayers be the same when we are offended by somebody, when we are treated unfairly? Father, forgive them. Show them the error of their ways. Where it's something that's so painful to us, where the hurt is so great, whether it risks consuming us with anger, then call on the Lord. Help, ask him to help you put your trust in his justice and leave it in his hands. And in the same way that you have been forgiven for your sins, pray that God would make them realise their own sins and their need for forgiveness. Well, as I, I come to the end, if, if you are here this morning and you're feeling like you are pretty much in the pit, that you have gone through a series of bad experiences and God is very far from you, you can call out to him. He will come near. He will remove your fear. And with great love and great mercy, he will remove your biggest problem, which is your sin. You may be here thinking, well, actually, I'm, I'm fine, thank you very much. You know, I'm, I am a pretty decent person. I'm certainly not someone who deserves to, to go to, to hell. The judgment's not reserved for the Joseph Fritzels of this world. It's for all who choose not to have God in their lives. Do you really want to continue going down that road of uh, trusting in yourself and rejecting God's wonderful blessings he has for you? Return to the Lord. Or you may have come in this morning having already been rescued from the pit, in which case rejoice that whatever difficulties you may still face in this life, whatever difficulties you are facing right now, they are nothing when you know that God is near you, that he's going through them with you. When you know that he has forgiven you. When you know that you're, you need never fear about the future because it is full of an eternal hope. It doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to examine your ways and test them because there will be times when we, we do stray from the law without actually realising it. And at those times we need to return to the Lord, confess our sins. Let me just finish with those two verses, 57 and 58, which mean... So much, which is so powerful. I hope they will mean something for you. You came near when I called you and you said, do not fear. O Lord, you took up my case. You redeemed my life.